Hello, folks. Welcome to the 21st episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within myth, spirituality, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures and sources. Today, we'll be looking at the story, Woman Chooses Death, from the Blackfoot Confederacy, or the Nitsitapi as they call themselves. Join me today on a journey into the past and the present, a voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. Our myth today is a short tale concerning both the creation of the universe, the world, and people, as well as human death, and how that came about. Our reference to the myth originates from an anthropology of the Blackfoot from 1908, published by Clark Wiesler and D.C. Duval. Wiesler did a number of ethnologies on indigenous peoples of the Plains States of America, or more simply, Plains Indians, as they often self-describe themselves as, and these included the Blackfoot, Gros Ventre, and Dakota peoples. He was there likely somewhere around 1901, is where historical references place him there, and based on his research time, the myth would have been transcribed likely sometime between 1903 and 1905, because the Blackfoot were not the first people that Wiesler went to see. Wiesler described the normative aspect of culture in sociology, or the idea that culture arises from learned behavior passed down through complex interactions of different ideas within a community. He focused on statistical tests and, though rarely cited, influenced anthropology and sociology to begin use of more scientific quantitative methods. Now, the reason he is not often cited is because he is incredibly racist, just the most racist person you will ever read about. He was heavily involved in the racial eugenics movement throughout his life, clearly believing in science-based excuses for racism, which paints his uh, use of statistics and quantitative results in a bit of a different light when you understand that history. He legitimately wanted to purify the population, writing about it regularly. He wanted to cull supposedly undesirable traits. This throws into question much of his methods and findings throughout his life and complicates anthropology's relationship to science itself as it's based on this guy and a lot of other guys like him, uh, their, their understandings of race and society at the time. Can culture ever be measured? Uh, Wiesler believed that culture was innate and inherent to humans. 
This idea remains throughout the discipline and is actually based on a racist conception of the world, placing culture on a linear scale of development towards a quote-unquote civilized nature. Thus, the text of the myth we have today, Woman Chooses Death, could be heavily edited. We're not exactly certain. The gap in time between reference and publication is also rather dubious. The heavily biased scribe is a common theme across mythological history, often following the typical savage colonized, civilized colonizer dialectic. For instance, many European myths were written down post-Christianization and contain anachronistic references to Jesus and Christian beliefs, like in Beowulf. This demonstrates the presence of bias in the transcription of myth and the transcription of literature in general. Now, I should note here that the copy of the myth that I have is an accumulated version, which means that it is actually taken from a number of different sources. So it's clear, actually, that this myth is not heavily Christianized, or at least the version I'm reading probably sanitizes any Christianization out that was put in by certain anthropologists of the time, it's possible, or missionaries that ran into uh, the Nitsitapi, the Blackfoot people. And so we're not exactly sure how much. It's a pretty common problem we have when we talk about the myths of indigenous people. They're oftentimes quite difficult to determine who is actually speaking because they're written by a different party. And this goes for many myths, honestly. It's been a second since we've done some history, so let's talk about the Blackfoot people's history. The Blackfoot are a collection of three primary tribes, as well as a few allies folded into what was and sometimes still is called the Blackfoot Confederacy. The main tribes are the Siksikawa, literally translating to Blackfoot, Kaina, or Kainai, or blood, as they often would go by in English, and the Pigan or Pikani people, sometimes split into the North Pigan and South Pigan, named in their own language respectively Apatosipikani and Amskaapipikani. Collectively, they call themselves the Nitsitapi, or original people, or sometimes Siksikaitsitapi, a Blackfoot-speaking people. They make up a population of approximately 16,500 people today, and they're spread primarily between two different reservations, although, of course, you can find Nitsitapi all across America if you're lucky enough. The combined lands of the Nitsitapi are vast, encompassing the northern U.S. state of Montana all the way to the far reaches of Alberta, Canada, which borders Montana, for those that don't know. It is important to note that similar to other tribes that lived in the Laurentian, or American, Great Plain, they separated their tribes into smaller bands, or simply communities of 80 to 250 people, that allowed for migration of individuals between them. The diversity of thought, experience, and learning that this fosters likely was seen as a benefit at tribal meetings, where new perspectives could influence the greater tribe. During winters, bands would group closer together, trading information, goods, services, and relying on each other to weather the harsh winter. Midsummer was seen as a celebration and acted as a coming together, a reunion for all four major tribes at the event entitled the Okan. Buffalo were hunted and used year-round. Pemmican was made from these buffalo in order to last people through the winter. If you don't know what pemmican is, it's a meat based, lard-based kind of product. It's basically like 
really preserved meat, I guess would be the best way to explain it. It's often pretty fatty uh, as well. The Nitsitapi used all parts of the animal for sometimes tools, cooking, clothing, and even construction. I have found conflicting information concerning the location and origin of the Nitsitapi. Some sources refer to a migration event occurring sometime before the mid-1600s CE, in which the Nitsitapi moved from some locality close to the Great Lakes to the Montana-Alberta region they currently inhabit. However, there was a 12,500-year-old skeleton found in central Montana in 2014 that was, quote-unquote, genetically similar to the modern-day Nitsitapi. However, genetics and their ability to ascertain indigenous genetics is sketchy at best. If you're interested, I suggest uh, reading Kim Tallbear's work. She has a number of articles concerning the overlap of the field of genetics and the lives of indigenous people. And I think she does a really good job of explaining why genetics are often not very good at defining indigenous tribes. So this is really sketchy. We really shouldn't even be looking at that as a, a likelihood. It is clear that people in the region used buffalo jumps, which was a practice of leading buffalo off cliffs from at least 300 CE on. The Nitsitapi do speak a language derived from Algonquin, which was primarily spoken in the east of Laurentia, not the west. This does lend real credence to the migration narrative, typically placing the Nitsitapi as arriving in 1730 CE, though other accounts say as early as 1200 BCE. It is possible that the Nitsitapi moved from the Far East to their current region slowly over the course of centuries, migrating with game and avoiding competition. Other groups were moving from the region at the time due to encroaching European immigrants and issues between tribes exacerbated by recent plague, if you take the uh, 1730 arrival point uh, as the most likely possibility, which it's possible. We, don't really, we really don't know. To me, the most likely history is that the Nitsitapi migrated from the western edge of the Great Lakes and assimilated into the culture found in the plains after accessing horses and guns briefly before migration. Oral storytelling from other Native Americans who made the plains their home reference people living in the region for thousands of years. Of course, this might not be in reference to the Nitsitapi, but those within their own tribes that were telling these stories. So, once again, it's hard to note precisely when the Nitsitapi arrived. The first recorded contact with European immigrants occurred with a Hudson Bay Company explorer in 1754. The history between this and 1870 is limited and somewhat unrecorded, so I will tell the entirety of this history in this time period, but do understand that it's not the best recorded, and most of our sources are heavily biased towards the European understanding of the world, the European worldview. It seems that Europeans continued to enter the ancestral lands of the Nitsitapi between these recorded events. I could not find a direct reference to the treaty or its name, but it also seems that the United States initially signed a treaty that gave the Nitsitapi a vast tract of land. The reference may be lost because the United States purposely did not record the treaty to allow for their further actions, as will be detailed in a, in a little bit. 
A different Hudson Bay Company explorer references a violent competition for territory between the Shoshone, Arapaho, and the Nitsitapi in 1787. The Nitsitapi seem to have won this dispute, which may explain the large amount of land they had in 1870. They also often fought with the Cree, Assiniboine, and Crow. The Nitsitapi had many enemies because after 1790, the Nitsitapi were on the back foot against the Nehiyapwat, or the Cree and Assiniboine. This period of relative obscurity is marked by a decline in buffalo populations, driving the Nehiyapwat to move further north in search of game. The decline is due to European settlers, the introduction of guns, and the introduction of horses. The buffalo were more stressed than they had ever been. The Nitsitapi often had other tribes assimilate into their culture. This was sometimes due to complicated political alliances, protection from their raids, or simply a people's affinity to the Nitsitapi, especially if they traded and regularly communicated peacefully. The Shoshone were forcibly assimilated into Nitsitapi society, however, against their will. The Nitsitapi were known for their raids. They would rock up on horses with guns, which made it pretty difficult to respond before a village or camp was completely surrounded. There were strict gender roles that placed women as gatherers and crafters and men as hunters and warriors. However, there was a tradition of what was called in English manly-hearted women who participated in hunting and other aspects of the masculine gender role, and this pretty clearly queers our understanding of the gender binary, right? Yes, there are certainly men doing warrior stuff, but there's also women doing warrior stuff. And I'm sure it probably wasn't referenced because they probably did not hold as important a role in society, but I'm sure there were male-bodied people who would go and do crafts work and gather. These roles are a construction. There were a number of achievements called counting coup or counting coup, I don't know exactly how to pronounce that, which would indicate social status of the individual who completed these actions. These involved violence, intimidation, and theft. The Nitsitapi were a pretty violent people for the region, and perhaps this could be explained by their migration. They might have been trying to assert themselves as a dominant force in the region, feeling uh, sort of exiled and out of place, so they decided to use violence to achieve these means. It could also explain the level of rebellion against their interests in the region when European explorers get there. If the Shoshone, Assiniboine, and the Cree and the Crow all hated the Nitsitapi, it's probably because the Nitsitapi were doing some pretty mean things to them. It's a pretty similar instance to how the Aztecs were understood by other local tribes when the explorers from Europe arrived, or colonizers from Europe arrived. One of these instances of counting coup or counting coup uh, is referenced by the Lewis and Clark expedition as one of the coup was stealing horses and guns, which was met with violence by the members of the expedition. After 1806, the Nitsitapi were more hostile toward Europeans, and the area was sometimes avoided by settlers. However, the Hudson Bay Company would establish a direct line with the Picani in the late 1820s. The tribe had decided to trade more furs for supplies, guns, and horses. 
The American Fur Company also set up shop in the region, though experienced hostilities until 1830. The 1830s is marked by continuing trade and the start of buffalo skins being sold to the Americans. It was primarily beaver skins being sold to the Hudson Bay Company or the English before. The Americans built two forts in Montana, while the Hudson Bay Company responded by building a fort in Alberta. This trade and the efforts of America to disrupt the buffalo populations uh, led to a destabilization of food supply to Native Americans on the plains, which ultimately led to a food shortage and famine. In the late 1830s, the Europeans introduced smallpox by boat. The lack of contact with European diseases led to an estimated 6,000 Nitsitapi to lose their lives to disease. The period between 1850 and 1870 is referred to as the Buffalo Wars because skirmishes between different plains Native Americans were constant. Nakainai, or Blood, and Pikani, or Pigan, both ceded the southern parts of their territory and retreated, while the Siksikawa maintained their territory. The food shortage and struggles with smallpox led the Nitsitapi to sign a treaty with America in 1855. This time recorded properly, it was entitled the Lame Bull Treaty, promising the Nitsitapi $20,000 of goods and services from the government in exchange for their migration to a reservation. Due to their placement in the north, the Nitsitapi avoided much of the violence from America during these wars. Though they would raid European settlers for food and supplies throughout the Buffalo Wars, and especially in the late 1860s due to smallpox and famine and lots of issues, they never allied or fought directly with the American soldiers. However, the Marias massacre would occur in 1870 due to a murder of a European settler known by the name of Clark by a young Pecani warrior by the name of Owlchild. There was a history of abuse and bad faith dealings between the two. Other white settlers became scared and began to petition for protection from the U.S. Army. Thus, the army demanded that Owlchild be executed and delivered to them in two weeks. The Bikani did not do this. In response, the army, on advice from a scout and translator, assembled above what they believed to be a hostile band of Pikani in what they referred to as a natural firing range. The massacre affected mostly women, elders, and children who were ruthlessly cut down by the American soldiers. This was because smallpox had taken many people already, and the able-bodied men were off hunting. Spear woman, buffalo trail woman, longtime calf, and bearhead were survivors of this horrific massacre. They give us an account that fleshes out the extent of this ultimately genocide. The village was burned, teepees were ripped down, valuables were seized, and most families were shot, though some were killed with axes, likely stolen from the Nitsitapi dwelling. The chief was shot while attempting to reason with the soldiers. By bear's head's count, 155 people were murdered on that morning. The massacre has never been acknowledged by the U.S. government via a monument or an investigation. General Sherman lied and actually reported that the massacre happened to the warriors of Mountain Chief, the intended target who had been protecting Owlchild. 
The Nitsitapi were on the decline after this due to a, an obvious lack of morale, the effect of smallpox, and the loss of many of their fellow brethren, their women, their children. They began to slow their guerrilla warfare against the invaders. And I should note here that I've been, this history is really rough, and it, it's almost hard to understand what the Nitsitapi were even doing during this. It's all from that lens of the European. So I just want to put forth here that they were like in constant war with local tribes who were also competing with them, as well as Europeans. Though they didn't fight directly in the Buffalo Wars, if people went to where the Nitsitapi lived, they were liable to rebel against someone going there. This is why we see bad faith between Owlchild and Clark, as well as other settlers that were living there. It was understood that this land was theirs. It was ridiculous for someone else to go live there. And the Buffalo Wars, right, were a very complex time. A lot of politics happened between different tribes that just isn't recorded or only recorded limitedly. So who knows? There might have been certain trade things that were going on between the Nitsitapi and even the Cree and Crow and, and their most hated ally, their most hated enemies at this time, because there would not have been as significant of a separation between their interests against the Europeans who were, and Americans, who were clearly trying to push them out of the region. This history of genocide and abuse and a lack of communication really continues into the modern day, as you're about to see. In 1870, the Cree launched their final assault on the Nitsitapi, which was repelled at Akaisakoyi, a name for the battleground translating to many dead. An estimated 300 Cree died fighting to regain some of the buffalo, which were all but extinct in the south at the time. This is another element to the history of the Nitsitapi during the Buffalo Wars, is that despite still not having access to that much food, they had far more access than those to the south of them. And they, to some extent, hoarded that probably because it was alone not really even enough to feed them because the buffalo were dying out. They were being systematically killed by American uh, fur traders who, who would leave most of the buffalo just to, to rot upon the plains. You can see that there are very complicated, you know, when, when food starts getting involved with war, things get very serious and the pain there is, is palpable. In 1874, the U.S. Congress changed the treaty that they had signed, breaking their promise. European settlers encroached much further into reservation land, causing all but the southern Picani to leave for the northern reaches of their territory. Those that moved north were met with another gussied-up treaty from Canada called Treaty 7. The Canadian government promised that the change to a reservation would coincide with help to transition the Nitsitapi to an agricultural methodology of food production, saving them from the famine of uh, endless, useless hunting for almost non-existent buffalo that they had been undergoing for the past 20 years. This did not occur quickly, however, which led to food insecurity in the winter of 1883 and 1884. An estimated 600 Nitsitapi died due to this negligence by the Canadian government. 
The reservations were quite small for the populations as well, which led to further disease and poverty in the population. There is a continuing question of whether the Canadian government promised more through oral means before changing the official written document without permission. In 1898, the remaining Nitsitapi in Montana became subject to America's outlawing of Native American customs and traditions. Nitsitapi were forced to go to boarding schools from a young age that attempted to assimilate them into the mainstream American society. They were forbidden from wearing traditional clothes, practicing their religion, or speaking their own language. If you don't know about the Carlisle School for Indians, which was a very big boarding school at the time, please go look it up. It is, has a very disturbing history. I'm not going to get into it right now because it is a footnote in the Nitsitapi's uh, history, but just know that it did this purpose. It forced these kids to just give up everything that they had ever known to join Euro-American society. It just does not respect the culture, the tradition, the lives that these people had led up to that point in their lives where they went to this boarding school, but also it just didn't, it doesn't respect the tribe at all. I mean, this goes for every single tribe that was affected by this as well. And if you listen to, I watched a documentary concerning the Carlisle School and what it did to people uh, fairly recently. And it was just so sad to see these now very old people talking about how they were abused. I mean, this was a very abusive school. It was not just, oh, you can't do this. It was, we're going to beat you if you do this. And remember, this is a group of you know, many different tribes, all trying to like understand what it means to be a human growing up, and they have no connection to their, their family. It's horrible. In 1907, the American government sectioned the reservation in Montana into 160-acre units. They encouraged the Nitsitapi to form into nuclear family units and live on these individual farms. This broke up the unified village and further denormalized Nitsitapi culture. These allotments were mostly on non-arable land, which led many to sell this land eventually to Euro-American settlers. The practice of allotment and the restriction of customs, religion, government was ended in 1934 by your boy Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The Nitsitapi swiftly formed their own government in 1935. The Nitsitapi mostly focused on trade of amylite, a local semi-precious stone, tourism to Glacier National Park, which I've been to, the creation of a pen and pencil factory, though this was decommissioned in 1990, and the opening of two colleges, one in each reservation, uh, one in the Canadian one, one in the American one. Uh, and as I said, I went to Glacier National Park, and it was a beautiful park. I, surely it would have been a, wonderful to live, live there it's a very beautiful location, and if you get a chance to get up to that area, I do suggest stopping in and supporting the Nitsitapi. Uh, you can buy some of their wares, their goods, uh, some amylite perhaps if they sell it. I don't know if they still sell that. Um, I, that was a little previously. They had like a, I think they had a mine at some point for it. It, it basically only exists there though. Amylite is a really rare uh, semi-precious stone, so you do not find it all that often in places. 
support them if, if you're in Montana because they deserve the support. Or if you're in Alberta, you can go and uh, support them there. All right, without further ado, let's tell this story. Woman Chooses Death. decided that something was missing in the world he had made. He thought it would be a good thing to create a woman and a child. He did not quite know how they should look, but he took some clay and mud and for four days tried out different shapes. At first, he didn't like the look of the beings he formed. On the fourth day, however, he shaped a woman in a pleasing form, round and nice, with everything in front and back, above and below, just right. This is good, old man said. This is the kind of woman I like to have in my world. Then he made a little child resembling the woman. Well, said old man, this is just what I wanted, but they're not alive yet. Old man covered them up for four days. On the first day, he looked under the cover and saw a faint trembling. On the second day, the figures could raise their heads. On the third day, they moved their arms and legs. Soon they will be ready, said old man. And on the fourth day, he looked underneath the cover and saw his figures crawling around. They're ready now to walk upon my world, thought old man. He took the cover off and told the woman and the child, Walk upright like human beings. The woman and the child stood up. They began to walk, and they were perfect. They followed old man down to the river, where he gave them the power of speech. At once the woman asked, What is that state we are in? Walking, moving, breathing, eating. That is life, said old man. Before, you were just lumps of mud. Now you live. When we were lumps of mud, were we alive then? asked the woman. No, said old man, you were not alive. What do you call the state we were in then? asked the woman. It is called death, answered old man. When you are not alive, then you are dead. Will we be alive always? asked the woman. Will we go on living forever, or shall we be dead again at some time? Old man pondered. He said, I didn't think about that at all. Let's decide it right now. Here is a buffalo chip. If it floats, then people will die and come back to life four days later. No, said the woman. This buffalo chip will dissolve in the water. I'll throw in this stone. If it floats, we'll live forever and there will be no death. If it sinks, then we'll die. The woman didn't know anything yet, because she had been walking on earth for just a few hours. She didn't know about stones and water, so she threw the stone into the river and it sank. You made a choice there, 
said old man. Now nothing can be done about it. Now people will die. Hmm. I love a short little myth. It's, we've been doing some really long myths recently, so it's really nice to be done that fast with the actual reading so I can get a really good idea of the entirety of the myth. It's a much more complete feeling. So in the beginning, we saw some certain concepts about beauty, specifically female beauty. The old man wants a round woman, someone who is perfect. He wants perfection, right? The idea of perfection is really tied to the idea of beauty standards and these ideas. So clearly they had specific beauty standards. Uh, it's impossible to say exactly what round means or as above and below. It, it, it says it's using multiple different terms for this and uh, most of them probably do not translate well because concept of concepts of beauty are really specific between different cultures and different ideas of what beauty even means and is. So we don't have a good knowledge of what that actually means. Furthermore, I want to note the use of clay here. It's a definitely a convergent evolution of the humans from clay metaphor, the idea that we come from the earth. We are a part of the land. You can find these beliefs in both hunter-gatherer and agricultural societies. However, once you get past that agricultural stage into a more industrial stage, I think there's a little bit less of that myth. Uh, certainly I haven't seen many people consider that myth in the modern day. I think it's one that really refers to people, people's closeness to the land, and it's, I think, harder for people to understand that today when you're living in a city and you're not, you know, planting yams or something. Let's consider what that means to be made of earth. If all humans are made of earth, then, well, what what does that mean for us? It means that we must be good to the earth. We must be good to all the things on the earth. Because if we are made of that earth, and we assume that everything else is kind of made of that earth as well, then how could we harm it? How could we destroy it? It would be horrific. It would be the worst thing ever. But it also defines life and death here. Life and death are defined here most predominantly as the main theme of the myth. What does it mean to be alive? And what does it mean to not be alive or to be dead? Perhaps being dead is not the best way to describe it because the clay was simply not formed before, simply not even created. Or, well, the clay was, but not, not put together. It, there was nothing, a void, right? And so death is a non-existence here. Not a specified afterlife, but simply the concept of non-existence, of void, of unknowing. God here, or old man, as he is referred to here, which is very clearly a representation of the God concept. Remember when we say the term God, I'm not being literal. It is a concept. And so we have to understand it as a concept. The presence of the old man here represents that the Nitsitapi were probably somewhat patriarchal as a culture. Having a great god who forms all the world is a very patriarchal concept. And it's found throughout most mythologies that are written down because most writing cultures have been historically patriarchal. Old man is not a horrific sky god, a judgment god, though. Not one like uh, the Adonai or Elohim of the Jews, of my people. 
Being alive is a confusing thing. And I think the more myths that are told that try to make sense of what it means to be alive, the better. In fact, a lot of the myths that we've told don't really deal with this big question. Flood myths don't really deal with it. Fables don't. Uh, heroes' journeys kind of do sometimes, but most of the time they don't. Creation myths occasionally do, but the ones that really get into it are myths that concern death. Why do we only question life when it comes into opposition with death? Why do we only truly see life as being important when there is the threat of death coming upon us? Maybe it is that finite nature of life that makes it so important, so worthwhile, but perhaps not. Perhaps it is just the fact that we do not know what death is. None of us do. It is a great mystery. But, of course, we know what happens after someone dies. They're dead. We know that. But we can't help but still question it and still not know. And it is a lack of knowledge that ends up causing all people to have this curse of death within the construction of the myth. The woman not being certain of the weights of things and how the laws of physics work throws a rock in a river in order to make it float, <laughs> which is humorous. It's funny. I can imagine that like telling this to, to a group of kids or something, you'd, you'd do so by a river and you'd toss a stone in. They'd be like, oh, okay. You know, it, it, that physicality of it, whether or not you do it literally, is, is very easy for, for anybody of any age to pick up on. And that's kind of how death is. It's, it's a stone dropping to the bottom of, of a moving, crazy river. That's what death really is. Because if you think about death, death is our existence ceasing to be. That's the only way we can define it. You can believe in an afterlife, you can believe in reincarnation, you can believe in whatever. But ultimately, death itself is the lack of existence within a body. That's why we often consider people who are quote-unquote brain-dead as dead in a form because they're not there. They're not present. And that aspect of humanity where we ascribe a sentience to humanity, to living, is one that is unsure. How do we know that the rocks are not alive and using a completely different structure of life that we could never even understand because we only define life via carbon-based means. Now, I'm not saying that rocks are alive, <laughs> but I'm saying that we, we don't necessarily have all the answers, all right? And I think it's important to recognize that. This idea of the void, of the non-existence that comes with death, is just as much a question as the rest of the world. Because the instant that you consider all the different possibilities that death has, I think it opens up a lot of realities in your, in your own life. Well, if death means nothingness, then how do we show nothingness in real life? What does that look like? Is it cacophony? Well, that's certainly something. So how do you define nothingness in life? Is life defined by its having not nothing? <laughs> There's a double negative for you, having something? I don't know. This is the brilliant part about death is you could literally talk about it for hours. I'm not going to talk about it for hours because there's more interesting things to be talking about 
in this myth. Let's focus now on the role of the woman in the myth. The woman is not only recently born, so a, an infantilized version of a woman, which is already somewhat uh, patriarchal in its conception, as well as not being very smart. Now, you could say that's from time and it's not really, e the gender doesn't even really matter here. Sure, but nonetheless, in the modern day, we often will read things through a, an intersectional feminist lens and I want to do that here, so we will. In terms of using feminism to understand this text, we see that the woman is always put in not only opposition to the man, silencing the idea of the non-binary, although you could define that as the child who does not speak at all here, and is defined by a nothingness, in fact, within the story, which is perhaps a way to think about death as the silent child, the inner being of us that just wants to be nothing. I think all of us have that. Certainly when I am very depressed, I think about being nothing, being a lack of thing. And that is comforting in those moments. I know to those that do not have depression, you might hear that and be like, oh, you are messed up. Like, you need help. I'm okay. That idea of non-existence and eventually dying is actually very, very good feeling for me. That's not to say that I want to hasten it, but I know that it's coming and I'm excited that one day I will die. And yeah, you're not gonna hear anybody else say that, that they are happy to die. But I will be happy to die when my time comes because I refuse to, to rail against life. So why rail against death? If our lives are meant to be lived well, then let our death be lived well as well. It's a lot of wells. Well, well, well. Anywho, the woman in this story is continually shown as somewhat lesser than the old man. In the construction of the mythos here, the old man creates all, is the founder of all, originates everything, even the spirit of femininity. This is similar to the construction had by Jewish people as well as Christians, Muslims, other patriarchal societies throughout the world. This lies in contention with a lot of other concepts about the creator, right? A more non-binary form of this old man character of God. Is God a man? I think that's, that's sort of a weird way to look at it. Now, I might be reading a little too into this and putting some certain concepts on it that I shouldn't be. For instance, the concept of God might be poorly applied here, considering that old man is not referred to as God, simply that their methodology and role is quite similar to God and even the clay forming of the Jewish God. So, and the Sumerian uh, sky God, as well as I think a ton of others, there's a lot of different formings of clay in creation myths. The use of four as a important and sacred number is uh, not sure for me. I'm not exactly certain where that comes from. I'm going to hazard a guess based on my understanding of the more broad beliefs of the peoples of Laurentia slash America in general, which is that they understand the land as sacred, that they see the compass directions as sacred. In fact, in a lot of conceptions within American indigenous tribes, you see a belief that there are six directions, and this is actually correct astronomically. 
There are, of course, the zenith and nadir, which are oftentimes left off of maps because they're two-dimensional. If you go onto Google Earth, if you spin it left to right, you're moving east to west, right? And if you spin it up and down, you're going north to south, right? But if you were to take the point on any, if you were to find a point on any section of that globe, and then you were to go up and down on that section, you know, from like a valley to a mountain, valley to a mountain, that is up and down, zenith and nadir. It's hard for us to make sense of that without like a 3D model to demonstrate, especially because I have no visuals for you, so you're just gonna have to imagine this. But imagine a great sphere, right? It has the four points in the center around the equator, and then one long meridian, not meridian, uh, one long axis in the middle. It's like the globe. Well, no wonder then, right? The Native American indigenous tribes had a extremely good knowledge of not only ecology, which is my personal favorite science, so I, I, I love their work, and I find a lot of their understandings of the natural world to be the most complex that we actually have, suggesting a tradition of ecology and scientific uh, work having been done for centuries, if not millennia, on this subject. Astronomy as well is included here. And there was even a college in, I think, New Mexico that, I can't remember the name of it now, <laughs> unfortunately, but it was a college where they were almost certainly working on astronomy because there were certain structures that were built in order to like be lit up at certain times of the day and, and that kind of thing. You know, stuff with the weird stuff with the sun and stars and moon that just wasn't really done by other, you know, like megaliths or stuff like that, that we have way earlier in uh, Europe or throughout the world. The reference to four could be a, an aspect of that six points concept, the idea of a compass being sacred, that you must pray to each side of the world before your own reality can come to fruition. I really like this concept. I think that the idea works very well and, and makes it so that you know exactly just how important each part of the earth really is and how important all of the earth is. It connects us intrinsically to the world. Now the reference to four is, you know, transitory here. It might not be related to the compass points. I just think it's a very interesting idea and one that is sorely missing from much of the rest of uh, certainly colonizing countries. The last idea I want to consider is the use of a sheet, the use of an obscuring mechanism in order for something magical to occur, for clay to become human. It suggests that this old man character must, in order to do his magic, uh, cover it up, make it unseen, not known, let it be unknown. And this follows not only a bunch of different magical traditions uh, in indigenous tribes, as well as pagan traditions even in Europe, but uh, it also follows a lot of beliefs that I personally have about religion. I believe that oftentimes religion is full of layers of obscurity, things put up in order to make the actual communication harder to understand. Now this might be done because there are a number of different people who do not want the 
actual ideas of religion and spirituality to get out to everybody. These would be uh, monarchs and people like the Caliphate, uh, who created the first edition of the Quran based on what Muhammad and his followers uh, were saying at the time. Now, of course, that's, it's a really complex thing, and we'll talk about the Quran and, and those myths eventually. The idea of obscuring is extremely important in Judaism as well, because if you'll notice, and this is true of Christianity too, God is not like present in the world. There is this obscuring between you and the Almighty or the, the unknown, the, the God of the world, right? the god of the sky, right? There's a separation. And this separation has increased in its, in its size over time it, within human discourse and, and literature. So you must understand that people back in the day felt very connected to their gods. They sacrificed to them. They would pray to them regularly. They'd see real benefit from their gods because they believed that the rain that would come, the sun that would shine down, the lack of horrible fire or flood meant that the deity was happy with them, that their sacrifices had paid off. There was this give and take feeling. Even if it wasn't real, the feeling was there. Now we lack that. There is a greater obscurity between us and the idea of God, the concept of God, or the concept of gods and power in general. It followed the slow rise of colonization. Colonization forced us to be further and further from God, from the concept of God. People suddenly were expected to worship something so beyond them that had no particular exact traits, just that they controlled everything, or he controlled everything, as most times it was. This monotheism was not present pretty much anywhere before this. There, there was at least some level of polytheism everywhere. Even this myth has a level of polytheism because the woman and the child are, are somewhat supernatural as well, and they are representations. They are greater than themselves, clearly. And perhaps I'm reading way too far into it, but I find that oftentimes these obscurings, a covered sheet over clay, is happening all the time. And to rip them away, we can see what's really going on underneath. And you have to rip them away. It is not easy. It is not something that is done lightly. The process of ripping away these obscurities causes you to reckon with the oftentimes ugly nature of the concept of God. Think about it this way. If you take away the first layer of obfuscation in the Jewish religion. You realize that in the Garden of Eden, where everything began, supposedly, or where most things began, humans began, supposedly, Adonai is the serpent. A serpent is like there for a reason, because there has to be an element of evil in the good, and there is an element of good in the evil, correct? It's what we see everywhere. The best people can do horrific things, and the most evil of people can sometimes do good things. There are not definite ways to define the world. That is the true nature of that story, the story of Genesis, the story of, guard, of the Garden of Eden. 
And we see it here. A covering must be put over the bodies before they may be, may be made. The actual magical processes of religion are only magical because someone has put a sheet up and told you not to look. Oh, don't, don't, don't see the person moving around behind there, uh, switching things around. Just watch the magician's hand doing funny tricks and waving a wand around. Huh? Yeah, it is what it is. And this obfuscation, this obscuring, I want you to be really, really aware of it from here on out. And I will talk about it again. I talked about it only here because that sheet is such a good metaphor for it. But it is everywhere, especially in holy texts. Because if you have the code, you can take away the sheet. You can rip it off. But if you don't have the code, you can't. If you don't know that Adonai or Elohim or Yod or whatever name you want to give for God is everything in Judaism, literally everything, Hasatan or Satan is God, literally. So don't go around saying that Satan is in opposition to Jesus or God. That is not really the case. There is an internal opposition. It is speaking about elements of the soul. Because as I said in previous episodes, the concept of God aligns very closely with the concept of the human and the concept of the soul, the individual soul. So it is a dialogue about those metaphors, ultimately. Once you understand those things, you can start decoding these more complicated myths. If you don't decode them at all, if you do not put real effort into it, then you will find that you believe wholeheartedly in things that do not exist. You will find yourself believing wholeheartedly in untruths. And you yourself will be afraid of death. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you so much for listening on in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen. Please do. Uh, following the show wherever you get your podcasts. Engaging in discussion in the comments, wherever they might be. And sharing this podcast absolutely everywhere that you can. Let's get to 100 followers. Let's do it. 100 listeners, whatever it is. I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you can stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocane.com. Next episode, we'll be exploring the Bedouin's Gazelle, which is a myth from the Arabian Peninsula, and we'll be exploring some of the history of this region as well. I'm, I'm terribly excited because it's a very, very complex history that once again deals with colonization. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And now, for the last word. Today's last word is unknown. <laughs> <laughs>